I, I do hope that, that, that we don't lose hospitality. I, I do hope that we don't lose uh, this beautiful industry that we have because so to me, keeping those restaurants alive is, is, is very crucial to our industry. And I, I do hope everyone can pull in and support and kind of be there for the whole industry itself. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The lockdown forced operators into new models to survive. With no choice but to change, it's brought out the creative side in operators and allowed them to chance their arm on ideas they were never brave enough to do in a normal society. What if the new model makes more sense and delivers a better quality of life, better than the one you've been toiling over for years? Michael Rantissi is the owner of Kepos Street Kitchen in Redfern, Sydney. Michael, how are you going? Very good, Anthony. How are you? I'm good. There's been uh, some serious uh, pivots by operators during the pandemic to survive, but I noticed you're no longer doing dinner at Capo Street Kitchen. Uh, I think we've all had to change a lot, and I think this pandemic has really been somehow good and a lot of it bad. But I think we're all, the majority of us are still here. So that's not a bad thing. Kebos Street Kitchen is known for its amazing breakfast, lunches and dinner. And the forced into closure and a takeaway model made you rethink things. Can you take us back to that time and um, what you did with the restaurant to change? Oh, I think it, it was actually one of those nightmares that you... Think that you're awake, but you're not actually awake while you're still awake, if that makes any sense. is you- <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, We have the two venues between the Kepo Street Kitchen and Kepos & Co. And kind of it, it all overnight started changing. It just was from big functions two weeks prior to the whole pandemic starting and Kind of going through that whole, we were predicting it is our best year in record and we're very excited of how the year has been panning towards us. And I think it all hits you all at once. You just don't know how to prepare what you actually need to do or what is expected from you. It just changes overnight. And I think it makes you think for a little bit that you had to shut your systems down to be able to reset things back. It's like an iPhone. You have sometimes to just turn the iPhone off to be able to turn it on and all your apps go back in place. So in in our head, we had to change things around. And with Kepos and Co, we had to shut it totally through the whole pandemic till the 10 people rule came through. But with Keppel Street Kitchen, I just could not deal with the world. When you see your child and and that's your restaurant is, is, is a child of yours because you put so many emotions in your business. And I think a business without a soul is, is, is not actually a business, especially in hospitality. You put so much soul and heart into what you actually do. So when you see your baby 
just drowning day by day, things changing around you, rules and regulations just getting tougher and tougher and you just wake up in the morning and go, I really don't want to deal with the world at the moment. I just want to pull back for a little bit and understand what has actually just happened. What was the impact on staff and and the businesses uh, given that you had to shut one down? Um, I think it, it did impact staff. It did impact people that are on sponsorship. It did impact staff that were on uh, student visas. It did impact kind of the uncertainty. I think as humans, we like to know when we wake up in the morning, we have a plan. And when there is no plan and there is nothing you can actually plan, you know, when you take a break for two weeks, you know, you're going back to somewhere. But with the first round, we just did not know how long is it going to last for? How are people going to react to what we're doing? Is shutting the right thing? Is I think we all dealt with a lot of emotions because we care about what we actually do. So the emotion just impacts you as your first kind of initial thing is, I, I feel so heartbroken at the moment and I just need to heal. So that happened as well to all your staff, your managers, and everybody's going through that same emotion all at the same time. And, and we, where we're very, very lucky is our staff have been with us for long periods of time that they were able to understand what we're going through because they were going through the same process at the same time. What were some of the things that you did to adapt uh, during that time? I know you offered a takeaway model, but then you ended up opening again. But the Kepos Street Kitchen model changed after you had a chance to reset. We definitely needed to change it. It all started by absolute kind of, not mistake is the right word, but kind of, you know, when, when you need to be creative, you need to be creative. And a couple of weeks prior to the whole shutdown, I did a function for a friend of mine that owns the Char Grill Charlie's uh, chain. And, and when we shut down, I did this really kind of, feel sorry for myself kind of post and he called me and he goes michael let's sit down and have a conversation and i go sure he goes look it's an opportunity for kind of just starting for you back again so we ended up having a chat and he goes why don't you start doing a kepos uh, product for all my takeaway shops because takeaway is doing okay at the moment so why don't you just open and do some products for me for my deli. And I thought that that was actually a brilliant idea just to bring back the staff, just to kind of the ones that are on sponsorship and the ones that needed our assistance and help. And they are family because you work with those people for so many hours a day and you see them constantly and you can deal with their suffering even that you're dealing with your own at the same time. So with Charlie Grill Charlie's, we started doing a line of product for them under Kepos and kind of because they were more in the eastern suburbs. So it was the perfect kind of way for our customer base not to leave their local area because at one stage we were all just staying locally and supporting our local businesses. And to get my product to my customer was not as easy as kind of being in a location where your customer base is around you all the time. 
So that was a great way bringing our product out to the eastern suburbs and for people to walk in to Char Grill Charlie's and support Kepos and support Char Grill Charlie's both at the same time. And I looked at the model and I went, you know, maybe that is exactly what people want. People still want the product. They still want the Kepos product served in their house. It's just the way we served it before is a little bit difficult for people to actually enjoy it at home. They wanted something, they still wanted the flair, the flavor, the product. So we started packaging things and I dodgily brought in a fridge and just put it in the middle of the restaurant, kind of looking very weird and dodgy. But I think at, at the moment, no one actually cared. People just wanted to support you in any way or form. So we started being very surprised of how many people walking in and just wanting to buy Kepos product to take home. So I looked at it and I went, you know what? It seems like it's not a bad idea. So as there is no uncertainty at this time, and I think we're still in a non-uncertainty time, I went and took the liberty on renovating kind of the front room and making it more of a Kepos-style deli that people can still buy our smoked eggplant and buy our pickles and buy our jams and relishes and homemade sausages and cheeses and labne cheese and everything that is done in-house and homemade baked breads and cakes. And we were just overwhelmed with the support and how much people still wanted the product, but they wanted to eat it in a different format than what they did before. And uh, we were just worried about opening the whole systems back into normal format because we just did not know how long this is going to last. Is it a year process or a two-year process? And it was our only way of minimizing risk, uh, adding another dimension to the business and still bringing our product to people in the easiest, more efficient, and the safest way we could. What were the challenges challenges involved in changing your product that's normally served in the restaurant to a take-home model? Did it change the recipes or the kind of food that you could do? Uh, it doesn't change the recipes. It changes your emotion because uh, as a chef, you want to see how people enjoy your product. It, that, that's kind of one of the things we, we love about hospitality. It's an immediate reaction. If someone loved something, you get to see then and there. And if somebody did not enjoy it, you would get to see then and there. And I think that kind of immediate correspondence between you and, and the guest is, is very important for any chef. And, and I think the second you take that, you don't have that kind of reaction automatically to how people enjoy your product or control to how they serve it or they eat it or the time frame for it or the freshness of it. And kind of you, you go through that emotion of going, am I doing it right? Is it the right kind of way of still preserving the integrity of the product? It kind of, it's just an emotion. And I think it's, it's more you dealing with your own emotion than actually the guest itself. You're no longer open uh, for dinner. You're just trading breakfast and lunch. What, what's it like having your nights back as a chef? 
Oh, I still have to do dinners at the other one, but <laughs> I, I have never had a, a, as much night shifts to spend at home. I, I think it's it, through the whole pandemic itself, kind of when it when we shut everything down, kind of the two restaurants and the catering. Uh, the first week, I would wake up every morning exactly at the same time at five thirty in the morning, and Christy would just—that's my partner—and she would just look at me and go what are you doing? You can actually sleep in. <laughs> and I just could not understand the actual concept of sleeping in or I, I would just put on my active wear and just go grab myself a coffee. So I don't look like a weird person walking in the streets at that time. Uh, and I would just wander around the city, just walk for hours because I'm just not used to not being at work. And, and with dinner time as well, like, what is it for a chef to eat at 6.30 in the evening? That's not heard of. You eat before service or you eat baguette with butter at 12 midnight. That's, that's your food. There's no normal food sitting down, having a civilized glass of wine and a full meal and then end up with dessert. That's just not something a chef would ever think that he is entitled to. And, and you spend time actually you go, you know what, that's actually healthy. That's, that's pretty, I, I like it. it. It's, it feels normal, but it takes you a while to adjust your brain for it to feel normal. But I, I, I and connection kind of the, the whole time, you know, I, I come from Israel and the majority of my family is, it lives in Israel and my wife is Aussie and uh, to have that connection with your nieces and nephews that as you know, the time passes and you don't have that connection with the kids because you're off to work, you're rushing here, you're rushing there. You talk to your brothers, your sisters for two minutes over the phone and you never get to actually dedicate any time for those young people. And, over the pandemic, kind of, I, I had so much free time and kind of uh, just a, a really funny story. And kind of, my sister is one of the most intelligent women alive. Right? She's, she's very, very fascinating woman. She runs a firm with a lot of staff, but cooking has never been her thing. She can literally burn water. That's how talented she is in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and in the first week of the whole pandemic, my sister just calls me in this most panic tone in her voice and going, I think I'm going to starve my kids because I just don't know what to feed them. How do I do things? And I went, you know what? I've got all this time in the world sitting around and doing nothing, really doing nothing. And I went, you know what, Grace, we will have a cooking class on every day. So it started with one cooking class of, of doing things because they were on total shutdown, a bit like Melbourne at the moment. So the, the basic supermarkets, they were not able to get to and kind of everything was running off the shelves. And kind of the, she had some weird stuff at home, things that I don't think I've heard of for a long, long time, like tinned mushrooms or tinned <laughs> asparagus <laughs> in a pantry. So we would end up cooking with the kids and kind of me and Christy would kind of do like a ready, steady cook kind of thing, go through her pantry and go through her fridge and pick some stuff and kind of just in 
incorporated that the kids are capable as well of getting something out of the whole experience. And then it ended up that my sister-in-law wanted to tag onto it and my other sister wanted to tag onto it. And I think my mom is an extraordinary cook and my mom got a bit jealous that everybody was tagging onto the whole kind of cooking with Michael that she ended up wanting to incorporate her cooking classes within the whole thing. <laughs> so it was actually so much fun spending with the, the nieces and nephews on, on the other side of the world and, and connecting with my sister and giving her a skill that she did not actually believe that she had in her. And, and it's, it's the basic thing of kind of sharing food with people is, is what brings joy and kind of even that you're on the other side of the world and you see the joy of people enjoying food. You go, I'm still cooking. I'm still doing food. I'm still part of hospitality, maybe not in the same format, but in a totally different format. And it's just temporary. What drew you into a career as a chef? Oh, I, I, I grew up in a household where food was absolutely everything. Um, it, it was in festivals we would have kind of my mom, my grandma, my aunties and kind of and uncles and dad and everybody would be around the kitchen uh, cooking and, and the men would be outside on the spit and they would have the cigarette on the side of their mouth and kind of those images from 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 the early 80s uh, and, and they would kind of roll it over there drinking their arak and kind of you know being kind of very old-fashioned men kind of gossiping things and the women would be in the kitchen and picking things and cooking and it would be kind of the whole fascination of the whole experience of people just moving in and out and and the joy and the food and the kind of bringing things together and on the table and the community. And it, it was special. It, it had something very, very special that I think the older we are becoming and the more Westernized society we're becoming, we're losing a bit of that kind of community sense. Kind of the whole family being together. Everybody is in each other's throats, cooking and cleaning and, and talking over each other and playing and, Kind of the whole thing was just magical. And, and the older you get, the more you think about it and the more magical those kind of fiestas were. And, and I would always stick beside them kind of learning how to roll the spit with my dad and, and, and his, and his brothers and uncles and, and my mom going there kind of asking too many questions. And I think when you're a child, they're all happy to teach you. But when you get to an age where, you need to be a doctor or an engineer and you're still enjoying cooking. And they look at you and they go, there's something happening over here. He is actually enjoying cooking. <laughs> so that's how my love to food has actually started. And, I, and I'm very surprised that none of my other siblings have actually got the same food bug as I got. Um, and I think at the age of 13, uh, I asked my dad to buy me a pair of kind of Puma shoes that just came into fashion at that moment. And he kind of, you know, it was, I'm one of five in a family of, of kind of seven with my parents. And, you know, they put us through private schools and they did a lot of things. And now you understand more things. But I think 
there were things that he needed to cut a little bit of edges to and he didn't need to buy the the top end shoe for his kids to just make them happy all the time so uh, he said no uh, you can only get the stock standard shoe for school and you're not gonna get this kind of shoe so as a and he just looked at me and went, you know, if you want whatever shoe you want, you have to work for it. And he actually did not really mean what he actually said, but I took his words literally. <laughs> so a 13-year-old child wandering around the streets of Tel Aviv, walking into restaurants and asking them if they need an assistant. And I think the majority were just looking, going, what the hell is this child actually doing till really one restaurant went you know what we do need the kitchen hand and i went sure i'll take the job so i would go on weekends and i would go after school and help out and get the money and i my dad was actually a bit upset that i actually <laughs> took his words literally and went to work but the whole experience of of kitchens the energy the vibe the cooking, the immediate reactions, kind of food is, is science in, in a way or another. Kind of you have to understand how everything works and how everything reacts and how meat reacts in different ways. And I, I think that fascinated me even more. So I, I was actually in love with the whole world of food and restaurants and that immediate satisfaction that you get. Your cuisine is sort of a modern Middle Eastern uh, with a bit of Mediterranean twist. Can you, can you tell us about your food? And is there a couple of dishes that stand out that sort of exemplify what you do? Oh, I've got a fascinating story for you regarding the whole cuisine thing because my um, qualifications is mostly French cuisine. So all I did all my life is is do French cuisine from working for Serge Dancero as his sous chef and kind of that's in Sydney at the Bates Pavilion and kind of all I did all my life was French cuisine because cooking Middle Eastern food in Israel was not sophisticated enough and I think as a chef you want to do everything that you were not raised to eat so I, I think you always wanted the challenge and only eight years ago because you would have guests over at your house but you would never end up cooking mediterranean food you sorry you would never end up cooking french food because the whole procedure of kind of having a degustation or this at home never seemed normal for me to host so hosting is what i got used to from my mom it's things that you get ingrained to as a child and the, the whole kind of experience of hosting people is different to how you serve them in a restaurant. So I would cook the food that I grew up eating all my life when guests would come over for dinner and friends and Christie's family that they were never exposed to that kind of cuisine, uh, the Mediterranean cuisine. So I would cook it more at home and everybody would just go, Michael, I think you're crazy that you're doing French cuisine and you're not doing this kind of food. So that's how kind of slowly, slowly everybody's been brainwashing me. Michael, you need to do this. You need to start this kind of food and serving it to people. And that was even before the whole Mediterranean thing became very popular in Australia. And people were introduced to the whole kind of 
uh, additional authors like Ottolenghi that helped a lot. And kind of there's been a lot of influence in the last couple of years towards that cuisine. But when we started, there was zero influence. And I sent some of the menus at the beginning to kind of family, friends over here. And they looked at me and they went, Michael, I think you're just a little bit too adventurous. You're going a bit too far with the whole Mediterranean food. So we, we, we opened Kipple Street Kitchen and, and that as well is a story by itself. Sorry, there is just too many stories, Anthony. <laughs> Please, that's what we're here for. Too, and, too many, and too many funny ones. Uh, so when we opened, kind of, we did not expect, and I went, you know what? If I am doing it, I'm doing it the way I want. I'm not doing it the way anyone else wants me to do it. So I did not care about what the criticism of everybody going, you know what, you need to have uh, more Western food on the menu. And I went, if people are coming for this, they're coming for this. They're not coming for something else. So but when we opened, the amount of response that we got was just – and we got a hat in just less than a couple of months of operating. And that was kind of overwhelming for this peasant food that, you know, I always thought of it as peasant food and kind of the falafel and the hummus and all of those salads and kind of we tried to modernize. And to me, Christy is my classic kind of food recipe tester because I would – kind of cook food and go, Christy, what do you think? Because she's the, the Aussie girl and I'm the, the, the Middle Eastern boy. And kind of I would try to check if kind of the palate and the flavor and everything kind of does she enjoy it? Is it too spicy or too, many, too much cumin or too much this or too much that? And kind of – and then you would get that response from customers walking into the place and you would just go – Oh my God, I just did not actually believe kind of the first week we opened, we had a queue out of the door and you just go, whoa, I, I, I'm just so overwhelmed at the moment that I just can't believe that this is really happening. So yeah, classical, I, I try not to have things on the menu that are kind of a permanent, uh, it's just changes within season, the falafel and the hummus because they're just classical things that are there all the time but kind of all those beautiful salads and vegetables and grains and pulses and fish and seafood and kind of that's what mediterranean food is all about kind of freshness and lightness and vegetables and cooked in different ways and having all that uh, fragrance from the freshly toasted cumin seeds and the a little bit of a drizzle of honey and a lot of olive oil and Kind of that what makes and a lot of herbs because it just makes green makes food happy, very happy. Given the model that you've switched to, which has become quite successful given the circumstances, what's your feelings moving forward given the lockdown that's happened in Melbourne and a few cases in Sydney? How are you feeling about all of that? Oh, I think that is 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 sad. Is it's sad to. To hear it's sad to look at it's sad kind of talking to a friend and saying kind of and the way things are going for the industry in general in Melbourne and and most likely it's gonna come to here as well in the future as well in the next couple of weeks and hopefully it doesn't but as a business owner you have to prepare for 
the actual worst case scenario so this way you don't ever get surprised and uh, it's devastating it's it's heartbreaking to see people that put their heart and soul into their businesses and you know they it's it's the whole thing for them it's it's another uh, and everyone that owns a restaurant or anyone that wrote a menu for a restaurant and anyone that worked in a restaurant kind of that energy and that kind of sacrifice that you put in and overnight you see it all vanishing in front of your eyes it's just heartbreaking it, it just i can't understand what someone else in melbourne at the moment is feeling because it just is it's the uncertainty, the craziness, the, the heartbreaking, the emotion, the, except the financial side that is, is a incredible breaking point, but people may lose their livelihood and, and businesses and it's, it's hard. It's hard. I just can't imagine having to go through this again. How has this experience uh, affected you? Has it changed you? Uh, I think this experience has changed everyone, regardless to people not losing their job or losing their job. Uh, it changed all of us. And some things to the good understanding that as a chef or as a business owner or as a human being, you need a break. And, and, and that gave us a little bit of a break and understanding that, you know, I can once in a while sit down and have a proper meal or go out on a Saturday night or go out on a Friday night and not have to feel as guilty as I did before because really we have to enjoy what we have at the moment and the life that we've got and as well dedicating more time to the family, dedicating more time at home. We have those beautiful spaces that all of us create for ourselves and and we never get to actually enjoy them because we're so focused on our careers all the time and at work and and money and finances and everything is a worry all the time that we never get to step back and enjoy what we've created. As a saying says, sometimes you have to pull back and smell the roses and we never ever get to actually do that as much as we think we actually do and we never do. As we move forward and... Uh, get through to the other side of of COVID. Um, what, what are you most looking forward to? Oh, look! I, I I wish I could see the whole future. Then I could actually be a bit more relaxed about it all. But I, I do hope that 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 we don't lose hospitality. I, I do hope that we don't lose uh, this beautiful industry that we have because. My biggest worry is more the, the higher-end restaurants and the more fine dining because without fine dining, I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in and I wouldn't have the restaurants that I've got. And that is the first thing that is going to vanish is those extraordinary fine dining restaurants that give all these young chefs these extraordinary experience and knowledge and ability and, and thinking and perfectionist and attention to detail that you would not get in any other restaurants except fine dining restaurants. There's, there's a reason why you pay the price you pay for your dinner in a fine dining restaurant is, is, is all that detail that goes behind the scene that without all of that experience, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing at the moment. And, can you just imagine if that whole 
part of the industry is vanished. What next generation are we going to get of food and how is food going to actually look like? And so to me, keeping those restaurants alive is, is, is very crucial to our industry. And I, I do hope everyone can pull in and support and kind of be there for the whole industry itself and people in general. I think we need to be just a bit kinder people to everyone around. Well, I tend to agree and I couldn't sum it up better myself. Michael, you've been absolutely amazing to talk to and um, your stories are just bloody inspirational. So um, please keep in contact and uh, we'll catch up with you down the line and see how the new Capos Street Kitchen is uh, is going without nighttime trade. Thank you so much, Anthony, for having me. I've really enjoyed talking through my stories. We'll keep in touch and talk soon. Look forward to it. Thanks, Anthony. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.